Good afternoon, everybody. Um, hopefully you can all hear me at the back. It's not a big room. Uh, yes, I'm going to talk about becoming a house detective. Um, I'm going to do so in relation to my experience in the last two and a half years of researching my own home, which is in Needham, which is just on the north side of the Waveney Valley, so just into Norfolk. Um, and um, I'm going to obviously relate that to the various uh, processes and the documents that I've had to uh, uh, access uh, and find um, uh, while I've been doing that, which therefore I hope will, if you're interested in that, will give you some leads and some clues if you're actually pro either doing local history research or uh, researching the history of your own home. Just to give you a little bit of background information, um, I am the, uh, on the board now of the new Waveney Heritage Centre, which is based in Brockdish, which is next door to Needham, um, near Dis. Um, we've taken over the old uh, Victorian school, which sadly closed two years ago, um, and we've turned it into a heritage centre for the whole of the Waveney Valley, for all the parishes north and south, so Norfolk and Suffolk. Uh, we only opened the, the, the um, centre and refurbished in June, so we're very new. Um, and one of the things we have to do is we have to make money because we have no money for the Heritage Centre at all. So um, we are renting out some of the spaces. We have a very nice, um, couple of very nice classrooms which can be used for meetings and also for uh, uh, courses and uh, uh, small groups. Uh, we have a, a very nice hall where we're going to be running a programme of talks and you have some details there of the first couple of talks we're doing uh, but those talks are going to be running all the way through uh, this autumn and through to the spring of next year. When I was approached about being involved with the Heritage Project which was back towards the end of last year when it was just in its early stages, um, I had already, um, as a result of my research, suggested to the village Needham that we could potentially do a community heritage project if people were interested um, but when I was approached about the new heritage centre um, the chair who'd been involved with a lot of bids for heritage lottery money uh, said to me well why don't we put a bid in for that so we did and I'm delighted to say that um, after a couple of months of waiting uh, we were given a £9,500 grant to do um, a project for both Needham and Brockdish uh, and we are in the process of doing that right through until March 2019. Uh, the outcomes of that are to, uh, we're going to be presenting, uh, doing an exhibition, doing talks um, and we're also going to do a new website with the material that we've discovered. As I mentioned, for the Heritage Centre itself, which does not have the money, the money is for the project, uh, we have uh, these talks programmes on Sunday afternoons and Wednesday evenings, and some of our first season include Mark Cocker, who I'm sure you've heard of, Tony Diamond. I'm going to do another talk in November on Dick Turpin, uh, the, the Myth and the Man. You can find all that information about Heritage Centre on our website. So, I moved in to Needham Cottage two and a half years ago. According to the estate agents, blurb, it said it was 17th century. Fine, okay, well, you look at the front of it and you think, yeah, well, that might well be the case. Um, however, um, on the right-hand side, that bit that actually looks pretty much part of the original building is a modern extension that was put on in 1996. Um, so the first thing I had to do when thinking about 
doing research into the college. I've never lived in a building this old, never. So it's a completely new experience to me. The oldest I've ever lived in is Victorian. Um, and so if we take that off, that's actually the original cottage that we're left with. Um, big giveaway in the middle above the door there, which is under the overhang, you can't see it very clearly, but that's a little mullion window, which indicates that the building certainly is likely to be 17th century or even possibly earlier. So that's, that's where I began. Um, of course, inside there were plenty of clues. That's the downstairs parlour or hall as it would have been in the 17th century. Uh, very impressive fireplace as you can see. Um, however, that was covered up for over 200 years. Um, in fact, it was only uncovered in the 1980s. Um, there was a squishy little Victorian brick fireplace in front of that. Um, and also there was a ceiling which covered up all the beams on the, on, up, up on the ceiling. Um, and there was possibly Georgian panelling as well, quite possibly. Uh, on the right, even upstairs above that in the master bedroom, there was another very impressive fireplace. So one of the things that struck me was this was not just a worker's cottage, clearly. It's not a stately home, we can see that from the scale, but it's a bit more than just a worker's cottage because these, the scale of these fireplaces and the beamage indicates that there's more going on. So I thought, well, what's the first thing I'd better do? Well, I need to go back as early as I can and find out about the village of Needham. It's only a small village. Even now, we've only got just over 300 people living there. Um, so I found out that there's a sort of the definitive work, the early historical work on Norfolk, uh, was published in 1806, although it was written earlier, there was an earlier edition of it, um, by Francis Blomfield, who was, um, did a lot of research into the history of the county, um, and uh, he was, um, you know, he, as you can see, he was a clergyman, of course that meant he had time on his hands. Um, he published the first few volumes of his work before he died, but by the time he died he hadn't finished the project. So a friend of his took up the project, and the whole set of books were actually published, the first full set, in 1806. And in there he told me, you know, about the village. There was actually an entry for Needham. And uh, one of the most important things I found out about Needham in his book was about the manners. And I'm sure if you've looked at older buildings or done local history, um, I've never dealt with manners because most of the local history I've done in the past has been 19th and 20th century and it's been to do with towns which were, didn't tend to come into that system. And amazingly for a tiny village Needham had five manors covering it. Um, and in addition to those main five there were overlaps on either side. So also there was uh, Brobdish Manor to the west and that overlapped into Needham and also there was a man of course some of these manors went across the Waveney because we're right on the border so we were in Norfolk and Suffolk but anyway this was this was really really important material as it turned out um, and also Tom, Tom Blomfield told me a bit about the church um, and uh, the history there and there were some quite interesting things about the history of the church as well so that sort of gave me the context of the village um, itself 
then I was told by one of my neighbours about this little publication, little booklet, came out 1974, which was called Some Notes on Needham, and it was written by the local vicar at the time. Um, and it really was notes. It wasn't a narrative, it wasn't a history, it was just a series. Some, he'd obviously come up here, done a bit of research in the days before the internet, and he'd got some quite interesting facts, and then he'd, of course, described the village as it was in 1974, which, of course, now is history. Um, and <laughs> the first thing I read was, in the autumn of 1966, the houses in Needham High Road were given numbers, and I thought, ah, so my cottage, which is called The Cottage, um, had no number before 1966, so what am I going to do? And a name like The Cottage, and I knew that names changed over time. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, how do I identify this particular building? And this, of course, proved and will, to anybody who lives in a village, be a real challenge. Unless you live in one of the old pubs, or the vicarage, or possibly the forge, um, so that's very important that I learnt it. I then also knew about this book, which was produced in 1985, and it was, if you like, the memoirs of a very elderly gentleman called Albert Bush, who apparently was quite a big personality in the village, um, and he was the son of the miller down at Needham Mill, and he had told his story to a neighbour who had then typed it up and they published this booklet. And in, in halfway through the, um, the memoir, he actually goes all the way up one side of the high street and all the way down the other side of the high street and he tells what he remembers about every single building and who lived there. Now, the difficulty here was that he was remembering back over 80 odd years. So the information, he'd lived in the village all his life, so he wasn't very clear necessarily when the person he was talking about had been there. But I have to say, for somebody who was in his 80s, his memory was amazing. So I learned that in my cottage, and Mr Robert Johnston, S-T-O-N, was a tradesman bricklayer, built the porch at the vicarage for £20, um, and there were about four acres of marshes, that made sense, the back of the house, and he kept a couple of cows and sold the mill. So, when was Robert Johnson there? Well, probably early 20th century, uh, maybe in the 20s, not the 30s. Um, that's all I knew, but very, very crucial clue because I had a name of somebody who lived there. It didn't necessarily mean they owned the property, but they lived there. So that gave me a really important start. The next thing I knew about was that there would be hopefully a tide map for the village because in 1836 there was a new parliamentary act that required every single village parish in the country to draw up a map, very detailed map of their village with all the buildings you can see in red, there they all are, and every single field and piece of land and they were all numbered. You can just imagine what it must have been like around the country. This went on for four or five years it took to map everything. You can imagine these chaps turning up in bowler hats and striding across fields with these strange instruments that they were lugging. And the, you can imagine what the tongues in the village were doing. Who are these? What are they doing? You know. Um, so, as a consequence, we had maps drawn up. Now, the Needham map was 1840. And what is brilliant about these is 
that they tell you in a separate document called the apportionment, which is a written document that you have to have with the map, it tells you every single owner of each of those properties and the tenant in the property, if it's a property, obviously if it's a field, the tenant will be farming it. So it tells you both those things, it gives you the acreage of each of these, and then it commutes, uh, gives a, a value to the tithe, because the purpose of this exercise was to stop people being paid 10 hens a year or 16 bushels of wheat or whatever, because originally, of course, the tithe was paid to the church in kind. Well, of course, by the Victorian period, the church has sold off the rights to collecting tithes to people who just want to make money out of it. And a few, you know, 20 dozen eggs and some, uh, some artichokes is no good if you're a businessman, you want cash. So that's what this was about, was converting it into cash. But it's a fantastically valuable document for anybody with a property dating back from 18, around the 1840s or earlier. So I found out there in the apportionment is my cottage, because I can identify it by the numbers. The owner is a chap called Joseph Kemp, John Kemp. And amazingly, the occupier in 1840 is somebody called Johnson. So I wait a minute, I suddenly have Johnson in the 20th century, early 20th century. I also have a Johnson back in 1840. And I've been so lucky because I have the same family have lived in the cottage for four generations. And that, of course, has made my life an awful lot easier. But it's not unusual to find that, that you get a family. Um, they, weren't, they didn't own the property at this point. They, were just the, um, they just rented it. Interestingly, they have eight acres now. Four acres in the early 20th century. They have eight back in 1840. And that's because they also have a big field opposite across the road. And we know why, because if we move on then, so here we are, there's, there's the land behind the cottage, cottage in the middle in the yellow, and then opposite you can see this big field that's, that goes behind. Well, I could then of course go straight forward just one year for the 1841 census, and there's Joseph of course, and on top of that I now know who his family are. He's married to Esther, and he's got uh, two sons there, and William Steigel, who's 70, very old for that period, is uh, a, probably a lodger. He could be a member of the family, I don't know, but he's, he could be a lodger. And at the top, Joseph Johnson, 65, so good age, is a farmer. And this would explain why, of course, that field across the road, which is almost as big as the whole of the area behind the cottage, because the area behind the cottage runs down to the river. So it's actually, you know, very wet, very boggy. You can keep cows, and people still do today, but, you know, you wouldn't get a lot of farming out of that. But the field across the road goes up a hill, so you've actually got um, a good agricultural piece of land. So I was, know nothing about early 19th century agriculture in Norfolk or anywhere else come to that, so I immediately went and did a little bit of research about what farming was like in the 1840s. And of course here, there's a lot of material up here, books here at the Millennium Library, of course, um, which uh, tell you a great deal about that context. So I could now go forward 10 years, pretty sure that the Johnsons are going to be there, and there they are. But something already fairly major has happened, because there's Esther is now the head. So her husband's died, she's left on her own, she's a widow, she's 63, 
she is now farming. So she's become the farmer, she's farming the eight acres, and she's employing one man, it tells us. So now I've got more information. Now, Robert, the second eldest son, is still there. The eldest son has disappeared, but Robert is there. But what is really interesting is, he's described as a bricklayer. I think, wait a minute, mum and dad are farmers, what on earth is somebody suddenly doing being a bricklayer? So there's got to be an explanation for this because it seems a very odd change of profession because of course in most agricultural communities father followed son so you wouldn't expect that. Well we have a map, not a very detailed one as you can see of Needham in 1797, the Faden map which copies are available up here and there to the west of the village is a brick kiln. And I thought, ah, so in the 18th century, of course, up here in Norfolk and Suffolk, lots of brick making. It's a very sort of well established because we've got so much clay up here. So I thought, ah, so it's highly likely that people who worked at that brick kiln might live in the village. Well, I then went forward in time to the first Ordnance Survey, which is sort of late 19th century, uh, 18, late 1880s, 1890s. Well, that brick kiln wasn't there anymore. In fact, it had turned into a farm, which is still there today, called Grove Farm. And I thought, oh, that's odd, so I wonder. And I happened, you know, I was looking quite carefully, and suddenly, right on the northern border of the parish, and this is right on the border, the dots are going just above it there to show the next parish, Starsden, there was a brickfield. Wasn't there in the early map, but it's now there, and it's a big one. It's got a kiln that's marked on there, and it's got all the drying sheds, so it's quite a large operation. And that's there by sort of 1880s, 1890s, so I'm thinking, well, this is really interesting, because this means there's brickmaking going on on the outer edge of the parish. So the chances of Robert becoming a brickmaker, and why would he do it in the 1850s? Well, the answer is, of course, because you've got a terrible agricultural recession after the... Um, after the Napoleonic Wars, and you know, farming is really seriously hard to make a living out of. Whereas this period, in the, by the 1850s, of course, building is booming. Doesn't matter where you are, because this is the explosion of population. All the people are going to the bigger towns, but also people are building uh, brick agricultural buildings now, whereas previously they were wood, um, because that's good practice. So all of a sudden there's going to be an enormous demand for bricklayers. It's going to be a good business to be in. And here are some really lovely photographs um, from the late Victorian period. That's very probably the type of kiln that would have been on the edge of town. Here are the brick, ma the brick, brick makers um, making, uh, hand making the bricks by the very traditional method that goes back thousands of years really. And here are the brick layers, and of course the brick layers wouldn't have been like today because there were virtually no architects unless you were very rich. Um, and basically the, the, the brick layer would, would really design your house for you because he'd have to work out the rooms, the doors, where the windows were going to go. So really he was, he was primarily your architect um, in this sort of early Victorian, mid-Victorian period. Of course, later on, you start to get building companies growing, 
and getting bigger and then like today they start employing the bricklayer and the carpenter and that sort of thing but in the early days the bricklayer would work with the local carpenter a plumber a glazier a, you know and they'd all do the jobs together and then they'd they'd help each other so each of them might do a single house and then the others would assist so basically it was sort of pooled labor and they'd all therefore manage to build you know and earn a living that way but later on you these bricklayers here sort of late 19th century early 20th they are going to be employed by a big building company okay so i then find uh, now that i've i've got robert I then find he gets married in 1854 to Caroline. Her name's Rainer, and um, I discover by looking here at the witnesses that there's a dad, and it turns out her dad's a publican uh, from another village, uh, so she's not local, but Johnson's marrying publicans' wives turn out to be a repeat um, uh, thing that happens quite a lot in the Johnson family. Interesting. I've been doing this work. Um, I go and give a presentation at our local village hall after about a year, and I give a talk. And my next door neighbour, who lives in Little Cottage, 1970, it was built. Uh, it was originally part of the land that my cottage sits on. I knew that, and um, the land had been split. Uh, the lady who owned our house in the 1960s, she was a widow. She was on her own and the house was too big and she built, built herself a small bungalow and split the land. Well, my neighbour then came around and said, oh, you might be interested, would you like to see these? And she brought me round a big pile of deeds. And I said, oh yeah, I've done an awful lot of work if I'd had those to start with, wouldn't that have been wonderful? <laughs> However, so I, I, I'd got the basic story by then, but there was a mortgage in here, one of the earliest documents, and what I didn't know, I knew at some point the Johnsons had become owners, but I didn't know when. And now I knew, because in 1866, here is the mortgage that Robert takes out, and it's a mortgage for £50. And he borrows it from this chap called Mr Hazard. Now I knew that in Harlesden, the town up the road from us, Hazards were the solicitors all the way through the Victorian period and right through to the Second World War. Um, and so I thought, well, yeah, that I can understand why the money came from the hazards. And so there we are. We have this quite detailed document here telling me um, all about the fact that um, there's Robert's signature at the bottom, which is really nice. So I'm getting closer to him personally. Um, so we now move forward, 1871 census, and mum has died. Robert is now the head of the family at the top there, uh, 42, and he describes himself, interestingly, as a farmer bricklayer. So that suggests that they are probably still using the land, but it's unfortunately it's probably his wife who's doing that, because if he's out doing the bricklaying, she's probably the one who's going to have to look after it. She's 37, not a big difference between the two of them there. Now look at all the kids, Thomas. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The youngest is Joseph, one. And the eldest is 16. Now, interestingly, Thomas, the eldest son, is not a bricklayer or a farmer. He's a tailor's apprentice. 
So this is again interesting. Change doesn't follow Dad, and he's a tailor's apprentice, which is sort of interesting, and I'm not quite sure why. The others are all just scholars because they're still at school, too young to have done anything. Now, underneath here, I then found in 1874 uh, a list of um, people who were allowed to vote. And of course, by this period, there's a gradual extension of the franchise. More and more people are being allowed to vote. And he is listed, there's Joseph, as the owner, as a £12 rated occupier. So this is now proof because he now owns his home and it's worth more than £12 he can now vote. So he's now a sort of very, quite an important member of the community. I also dug up some wonderful um, documents at the uh, record office um, at County Hall called Glebe Terriers, which I think is a lovely name. A Glebe Terriers, they're all folded into little, um, they're parchments which have all been folded up into small um, little envelopes. And um, in the 1879, um, they were um, records of regular meetings at the church, um, and they were um, listing the church's owner, ownership of uh, property, uh, buildings, um, and, and what the church actually owned inside the church, and they were all valued, and had to be valued. But at the very end, they would have a list of three or four chief inhabitants who had to sign this, obviously to say that this was sort of accurate. And in 1879, Robert Johnson is a chief inhabitant. So he's doing really quite well for himself. And, you know, the family obviously are very important in the village. So we go forward to 1891. And there we see that um, the family now, Caroline's still there, but in 1893, she dies. And that is her tombstone. And sadly, that's the only tombstone left for the whole family in our village churchyard. Unfortunately, the vicar who wrote the book I showed you at the beginning in the 1980s decided the churchyard was a bit of a mess. It was difficult to mow the grass. And so he had a lot of gravestones moved or removed because we don't know where they are. So that's Caroline and she's the only Johnson left from the 19th century which I think is really sad. Um, but there you are, that's, that's what happened. Now, uh, very shortly afterwards, um, her husband Robert dies. And we know that because we have the sale of his furniture in the local newspaper in October 1894 and it says the executors of Mr Robert Johnson um, and uh, he they're selling off now I because unfortunately they're selling it with somebody else's furniture which is really frustrating we don't know which of those items actually belong to Robert which is frustrating now he had a mortgage I told you well, it turns out he not only had that mortgage, but he took another mortgage out, and then he took a third mortgage out. And the original was for 50, the next was for 30, and the third mortgage was for 20. So he now owes 100 pounds on his property when he dies, and he hasn't paid off the actual capital debt. He's been paying the interest. So what has to happen is not only does his furniture go to auction, the house goes to auction. His eldest son, who is also Robert, but Robert J, is living in the house. And suddenly, 
if he wants to carry on, he's got to go to the auction and he's got to bid for his own house. And that's what he does, and he buys the house. But he has to pay £200 for it. So Dad had borrowed 100 he's got to borrow 200 and there's the mortgage. Now he takes the mortgage from somebody called John Rackham Miles. And the Miles family are, in our project, are beginning to emerge as a very, very important family in the village. Um, and um, John Rackham is the second generation. His father's called John Cannell Miles. The fact they've got three names means they are quite well off. In fact, that turns out to be the case. And John Rackham has inherited quite a lot of money from his dad. And he invests it. And he, he lends money to a lot of people in the village on their properties. And then we move forward to 1911. And there is Robert Joseph, Robert J, who's now living in dad and mum's home. And he's married. He's got a wife. And he is described as a bricklayer. So the bricklaying is now continuing right through in the family. Now, interestingly, right at the bottom here is a name, Spinlove, and it says schoolchild, and he's only a little one. And I thought, ah, now, I'd done some research in the censuses, and I knew that from the 1870s onwards, the Spinlove family lived next door to our house. And I knew that they were bricklayers and brickmakers, because originally they'd lived, actually, in, 18, in the 1841 census, they were living in the cottages by the brickfield that I showed you. They, they then moved into the village. They were obviously, you know, want to get away. Um, moved into the village, moved in next door, and suddenly their son, or I thought, well, a child with spin love, is, is in, in 1911, well, maybe they're just looking after him. And I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe there's something more to it than that. Uh, maybe there's a reason. Maybe have the families married because they're living next door to each other? Happens quite a lot. And I went and had a poke around. And sure enough, it turns out that one of Robert J's sisters has married into the Spinlove family next door. And this is their grandson, who is now staying here. And there he is. He's the little one up on the top left. And that's his younger brother. And this is a photo from the school in the village from around about 1907-1908. So I haven't got a picture of the Johnsons, <laughs> but I do have a picture of their, uh, uh, the, the uh, family um, who, who they've married into. So that's really rather nice. <sighs> because I've got this bundle of documents, my neighbors sent me, thank bought me, thankfully, I now know that Robert J sells the house in 1927. So the Johnsons I know have been there from 1840 to 1927, and he sells it to a Miss Heath. Now Robert marries, as I told you, and the lady he marries is not single, she's a widow. And the other interesting thing that's emerged with all the Johnson elder brothers they all marry after their father dies don't you think that's a bit odd why all of them do it robert marries after his dad dies and uh, robert j marries after his dad dies and this has gone for three generations and actually her husband's name his wife 
her first husband's name was Heath. So he has actually, I am sure, sold the house to a relative of his wife's. So sort of, the, the house sort of stays in the family. Um, I know Robert continues to live in Needham. I don't know where, because I haven't found out, but I'm going through the newspaper archives at the moment, and I'm in nine, I mean, I've got as far as 1934, and Robert's name is cropping up from time to time in newspapers as being at whist drives or um, helping out with the British Legion and things like that. So he hasn't left the village, but he's sold the house. And he only makes, <laughs> wait for it, £207 for the house. And he's paid 200 for his mortgage. So it's not a lot of, um, he hasn't made a lot out of it, has he? So by this time, my neighbour across the road and the house across the road, which you can see at the top there, um, was the largest inn in the village. It was called the Fisherman's or the Fisher's Arms. And as you can see, it's a big old coaching inn. And my house is right at the bottom there, you can see the roof. And Sue, who now owns the Fisherman's, which has now been a private house for 60, 70 years, had this done in 1964 and gave me a copy and also on the left you can see the barn that was part of our property and then on the right here that garden that you can see stretching to the right with with a very large dovecot in the middle of it that's where the bungalow that my neighbours live in was built and that's where the land was split right so, I've gone from 1840 and I've gone forward and followed the Johnsons all the way forward. Now's the more difficult bit. I now want to start to go backwards. And obviously, that's much harder. But, I find a baptism for Joseph, who obviously is there in 1840. Is the, and there he is, and he's the son of Thomas. And also, his mum, Esther, who we know already, um, and she is a smith. Her surname is Smith. Now, I already know that across the road at the Fisherman's Arms, the family who are the landlords in the early part of the 19th century are the Smiths. So, we now know that Joseph has married the girl across the road, the publican's daughter. So, that's really nice and it sort of all ties up really well because they're literally opposite each other. Um, so there we have Joseph. Um, we, we've got the marriage now. Um, there it is. Esther, Smith, Spinster. And there's a dad down there. Um, and uh, Joshua Smith, which I've put in red. And he is the landlord. And so that all now is definitely confirmed. The Smith family from across <coughs> the road and the Johnsons. So there we are, uh, some research has been done by somebody and put online. There's Joshua Smith Senior, who uh, is the licensee prior to 1827. And then his son Joshua takes over. And then his wife, Joshua's wife, after he dies, she continues the business for another couple of years. Not unusual, of course, in the Victorian period. Widows, particularly of um, uh, pubs often continued the business after their fathers had died because quite frankly they probably run the place anyway for most of the time 
because very often, of course, the um, publican uh, would have another business, very, very common. Uh, coal merchant, they'd, they'd uh, do farming. Um, they One of them across the other side, our other pub was a butcher at this period as well as being a uh, licensee. So I then go back and there's Esther, there's her birth certificate and it's she's the daughter of Sarah and Joshua Smith and that's her baptism from 1787. Now I have a nice stroke of luck which of course you always need when you're doing this kind of thing and in the I start going through uh, the newspaper library online because I can access it for free in Harston Library just as I could here or over at the archive and um, I start to go forward from the sort of 1860s 70s when the first newspapers appear and lo and behold in 1796 I find this, which is an auction of, a, of an estate in Needham, and it's got a dwelling house, barn, which I already know is there, stable, cow house, and other necessary and convenient outbuildings, plus significantly eight and a half acres of <coughs> meadow and arable land. Now, I know eight and a half acres is what's in the 1840 tide map. So that all ties in, but the key thing is in the tenure or occupation of Thomas Johnson. So the Johnsons are there in 1796, so I've now pushed them right back um, another 40 odd years into the 18th century. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, now, interestingly, I find out later that the house didn't sell because there's no change of ownership, um, it turns out. Um, so, now, the 1790s, um, of course, we're in the height of the Napoleonic Wars here, French Revolution period. It's a very unstable period in British history, and to try and sell something at that time is probably not, not great. Um, but anyway, it definitely did not sell, I know that. Here's rather a nice... Um, print um, engraving of Needham which is here in the collection and I got my father who used to be a bit of an artist to do a bit of hand colouring because I thought that sort of zhuzhed it up a bit but it is of course originally was um, a black and white print. Um, you can see the church sticking up at the back. Now what is very interesting about this print, it took me ages to work out where it exactly was supposed to be because I thought, there aren't all these buildings, there's nothing in front of the church now. And in fact, the building here is still here. That's, that's a farmhouse, which still exists. And the building next to it there, um, that's all part of a farm. And these are stacks. But those houses to the left there that you can see, they're all gone. They don't exist anymore. They were demolished. So that explains why I, I had so much difficulty trying to work out the location. So I'm now, I'm back in the 18th century. So what am I gonna do to try and see if I can find out who the owners are, any more about the history? Well, I go back to the manors at this point because I know that um, it's a 17th century property. There is a strong chance that part of the land it's on could have been owned by one of these manors. So I start to come up here three of these manors, the records are here at the record office. But because we're on the Suffolk border, 
two Witchington and Denzons are in Suffolk and to make it even worse one is in Lowestoft and one is in Ipswich. So I come up here and I work my way 1840, I know who the owners are for definite, I find the records up here for all those three manors for the 1840s, 50s period and there is no mention of any name Johnson in them. So I then arranged to go to Lowestoft to find the Witchington Manor records and lo and behold now there are two lots of records some of you probably know this the court leap and the court baron the one that interests you if you're trying to do the research into your property is actually the court baron records because they're the ones that show the changes in ownership of land and um, if you're lucky these will go back to the 17th century if you're even luckier, they might go back earlier, but most of the ones I looked at go back to the 17th century. Um, the only problem is that they go into Latin prior to 1730. So that's a bit of a challenge. I don't read Latin. In fact, reading the 17th century ones, which are technically in English, is also a challenge, as I'm sure some of you know if you've tried. So the court baron, effectively, you held your um, land in what they called copyhold. And that was called copyhold because what happened was the clerk, who's the chap sitting on the left there in this uh, woodcut, he would note down um, the ownership when it passed from one person to another. So somebody died, handed it to their son, and it would be their son usually in the 17th century, handed it to their son, the son would have to bring a copy of the will to prove that they were the right person and they were the inheritor. Part of that will would then be written into the court record and then the person who was inheriting would have to pay a fine. Nice little earner. You'd have to pay a fine to take over the ownership. And then your name would be entered in and um, you would then be given, and you'd have to pay again, for a copy of that from the court record. So you had a copy of being the owner and therefore it was copyhold that you held it from the Lord of the Manor. And technically when somebody died and before the, the inheritor took over, the land technically reverted to the Lord of the Manor. Um, and if you didn't come in, three, if somebody didn't turn up within three years, of the death of the person who owned it and present the proof that they had inherited or they bought it because of course then in when you get into the 18th and 19th century things start to get bought and sold that means of course that, um, uh, that I think the land then technically reverted to the court to the Lord of the Manor and you were in trouble if that happened so you had to get there within three years so um, but what makes these roles much easier to read and I, learned, I know at first sight you go oh my god um, but in fact they're, they're formatted and if you look 1650, 1705, 1785, 1839 they're all the same set up at the top you get the details of the actual date of when the, the, the court's sitting you get the homage which is the group, small group of, um, of, of tenants, the most important tenants, have to go along and be the homage, which is like a sort of jury. And um, then below that you start to get where the changes, because the court only meets 
to record these changes in ownership. And they appear in this left-hand column, which is always a wide column. Now, the other brilliant thing is that because when they enter the new owner, they have to go back and check when the previous owner came into the ownership. So what the clerks do by hand in the back of the books goes straight to the back of the book. There's an alphabetical handwritten list of the surnames of all the people with the page number that they appear on. And it's in the order. So if you've got three generations of Smiths, say, you will see that they will all follow on from each other, but the, the, where they appear, the pages, now, even when you go back to 1650, and that one's all in Latin, you can actually read the names because they're names on the left there. So although you may not be able to read the Latin, you can certainly read the dates when... So you can go back before 1730. Right, I think I will just... So, I now, in the manner of Witchington... I knew, of course, John Kemp was the owner in 1840. So in the Witchington Manor records, it turns out, I just look in the back of the book, it says Kemp, page so-and-so, and I find that he's entered as the owner in 1813. He has then, prior to that, it's been with a chap called John Candler. It could be Chandler, because there's never any consistency, as you know, in spelling. So it's... It, and, and there are Chandlers, um, a family called Chandler in Harleston, who are quite important in the 18th century, so it could be them. But then we pass back into a family that owned the property for nearly 100, over 100 years, and they're the Wales family. And there's Isaac and Carver, great name Carver, isn't it? Um, and in 1720, there's Jane, and I call her Aunt Jane, because Jane left a will, and it's here in the archives, and I had assistance in uh, trying to read it and, um, and uh, transcribe it, and here she is. She has left in her will um, in 1769 to her beloved brother and sister, James and Elizabeth Barnes of Harleston. Um, her messuage, her, her building, her property, lands, tenements, these are outbuildings, and hereditaments whatsoever lying in Needham. Now, I thought, wait a minute, who's James and Elizabeth? She uses the term brother and sister, but they haven't got the same name, they're not Wales. Well, poke around a bit, and of course it turns out Elizabeth Barnes is her sister, Elizabeth Wales, who has married James. So it means that they're going to inherit in their lifetime. But then after that, she leaves it to her nephew Carver. So he's going to inherit. So in the, in the um, court records, there is this gap because she dies and that is in, goes in because the w will has to be produced. But in fact, Jane is a very organized lady. She's a spinster lady. She doesn't get married. Um, she very sensibly, when she's written her will, takes it to the court and has it entered so that Carver, her nephew, later on, doesn't really have to worry too much because the actual will is written into the manorial record. So that when he turns up and says, I'm inheriting from Aunt Jane, they look and say, ah oh, yes, it's all in here. So she's incredibly organised. I'm 
pretty certain she lives in our house as well as owns it. I can't be 100% sure because I haven't found anything to prove it. But it's wonderful, obviously, to have somebody's will because it's very personal. And then she has inherited from her dad and he in turn has inherited from his dad. So we're now back to 1680. So we're getting back really towards when the house was built. So can I track the ownership back before 1680? And more importantly, when was the house built? Because I don't know for sure. I'm now back in the 17th century. It's no good me looking for something if the house was not built, is there? So what I then did was I invited in, and you can do this free online, I invited the Norfolk's Historic Building Society. Um, they will send their house detectives in to your house for free and they will do a survey and they will look at all your beams and how they've been shaped and how they've been put together and they will tell you when they think your house was built. And my house was, they are pretty sure, was built in the 1620s. And there I'm going to leave it because I know you like to have questions afterwards. Um, I can tell you I've now traced the ownership back one more generation to a glover called Thomas Kidman who owned and lived in the house um, and I've got his will as well which is pretty amazing from 1669 and I link it into the Waleses so um, I am getting closer but I've still got that final sort of of course the civil war is in the middle and that is a very disruptive time um, records are not being kept like they should have been so actually it's a very difficult period to go back into and of course I've got to go back further than that anyway I hope you found that interesting and enjoyable and if you have any questions I'll be very happy to answer them mm -hmm.